Welcome aboard the Shipshape Podcast, your ultimate destination for marine wisdom and expertise. Our skilled crew, comprised of top boating journalists and experts, is committed to delivering informative and captivating content week after week. We're eager to connect with and learn from our fellow mariners, and we encourage you to share our podcast with your friends. Remember, word of mouth is our lifeblood, and if you enjoy an episode, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. By doing so, you're helping us forge a robust community of mariners who can learn, collaborate, and exchange their experiences out on the water. Welcome to the Shipshape Podcast, where we navigate the marine world, its stories, trends, and voices. Today, we have with us a man whose name resonates deeply within the boating and fishing community of South Carolina. From winning the College Fishing National Championship to leading the charge as the CEO of the South Carolina Boating and Fishing Alliance, his journey is nothing short of inspiring. A former journalist, a college fishing All-American, and a passionate advocate for the industry. He's been at the forefront of some of the most pivotal moments in South Carolina's boating and fishing narrative. Please join me in welcoming the dynamic and dedicated Geddes Brennan to the Shipshape Podcast. Your two co-hosts are Meryl Shred. I'm a liveboard on a Toshing Toshiba 36 in Boston, Massachusetts, and T. Hey guys, welcome to the podcast. Allah Bhatti here. And today we're going to be speaking with Geddes and his uh, journey from just casually fishing to trying to get some regulation in our favor. So welcome to the show, Geddes. Meryl T, thank you so much for having me on the Ship Shape podcast. I wish I was coming to y'all from a boat, but I am coming to you from the state capital in South Carolina, Columbia. And it's a beautiful day here in South Carolina. It'd be a lot better on the water. But Meryl, thank you for the introduction. And I hope I can somewhat live up to it. So you mentioned you're having some good weather. Tell us how and why you got into all of this to begin with. Did it start with fishing? Where does, it all, where does your story begin? Yeah, it certainly started all with the rod and reel. Grew up fishing in, on ponds. Grew up fishing on Lake Norman, close to Charlotte. I'm from Gaffney, South Carolina, a small town in the upstate of South Carolina that is probably about halfway between Greenville and Charlotte. So the closest lakes to me growing up were always Lake Wiley and Lake Norman. And so through high school and even before then, my parents had a house on Lake Norman growing up and and just always would spend time out on the water and just enjoyed it. Never knew it would be a career, but kind of stumbled into it as I fished more and more tournaments at Lake Wiley. I came down to South Carolina on a scholarship for journalism and found out that they had a fishing team and the rest was history. So could you give our listeners kind of a brief understanding of what college fishing is? Absolutely. College fishing, first and foremost, is probably one of the most underrated career ladders for the maritime industry that there is. You find a way to work with sponsors at a young age. You find a way to mold and learn about the industry when you're still in the years that you're learning. And so you get to work around some of the best folks in the industry. You get to work at places like Bassmaster and some of the other tournament organizations. And that brings you around great companies like Yamaha and all the good, huge 
companies that when you grow up, you just see on TV or you see on TV commercials, and then all of a sudden, you know who's running them. Um, and so it really gives you a unique opportunity to really learn about the industry, take it all in. And it's the time of your life that you know, traveling across the country with some of your best friends, fishing tournaments is an awesome experience that I'd recommend to any high schooler going to college. Check out and see if they have a college fishing team. And obviously winning the 2015 College Fishing National Championship had to have changed your perspective somehow within the sport and the industry. Could you talk a little on that? It certainly did, Merrill. That was uh, just a, a blessing there. And in 2015, when we won the College Fishing National Championship at the University of South Carolina, it really just set my career path on another level. Uh, it set my partner's career path on another level. Uh, he ended up going and fishing for the Bassmaster Elite Series. His name's Patrick Walters. Um, he's a hell of a fisherman. It's actually a, a really cool story to look at because he's gone the professional fishing route and I've gone the, the business route and the political route. Uh, but that certainly put us um, on the map, I guess you would say, and it created opportunities and doors just opened and just, like I said, many blessings, uh, started working at Bassmaster right after that, doing journalism on the ground for them across the country. And it was just a, it was just a great time. So I want to dig a little deeper into that. How does one become a good fisherman? Like, do you just go fish more? How much is luck involved? Cause there's almost a sort of preconceived notion that there's, if you're lucky, you're lucky and some days just you aren't, but like you, Meryl was telling me, went from like the 40th position to like the first. How how does one even do that? <laughs> so time on the water, there's no substitute for time on the water. That's that's true of freshwater and saltwater fishing. I think a, a lot of our industry when it comes to fishing and when I was at Bassmaster, we did the media relations side of things. And so it's always interesting to explain to local journalists, like this is closer to golf then you thinking that we're drinking a beer waiting for a bobber to go under. Um, there's a lot of science that goes behind it. There's a lot of observation and there's a lot of strategy when you're on a, a huge lake. It's almost like you are playing golf, except the hole's always moving. Mm, what's some of the science though? What do you mean? Water temperature. You talk about the different forage. And then when you start looking at the clarity of the water, you know, it could get into the different size lines different angles on everything down to your weed guard on whatever bait you're throwing your face down looking at a sonar all day a lot of times during practice you put in nine to five six to five hours i should say it's definitely before nine but uh for practice you get out there and i think that's what surprises a lot of people too is there's a lot of practice that goes into these tournaments you start on a monday or tuesday and get ready for a tournament that starts on thursday you spend from daylight to dark out on a boat and just learning that reservoir, um, learning that body of water and all of them set up differently. So, you know, with sports, you practice this entire time, you, you fight the entire season and you get to the championship and then everything is on the table here. So could you give us kind of what that day was when you guys won the national championship? Just give us the story. All right. My mom's going to kill me for telling this actual story. But I have to say it because it, it <laughs> turns into it turns into a story of where applied knowledge is greater than academic knowledge. Mm -hmm. I say that to say, don't take notes at home if you're in high school. It's not the right way to do it. 
So I was in <laughs> my, my senior level journalism class, or maybe it was my junior level journalism class. There was a group project and the professor was very, very strict on absences. And I happened to be on a full ride to the University of South Carolina and I could not fail a class. Well, I told the professor, I have the opportunity of a lifetime to at least go and compete for a college fishing national championship and a berth to the Forest Book Cup, a brand new Ranger bass boat at the time. And, you know, I just said, I got, I got to do it. And he was like, well, college fishing doesn't count. So these absences are going to go against you. And, you know, I let the people in my group know earlier that year, hey, this is the week I'm going to be gone. I don't think they knew it, but I was actually leaving because they were not very happy that I was gone when it comes to the professor. And, and you know, you've run into that a lot in the maritime industry. You learn in, you, you run into that a lot in the fishing industry where, you know, they think you're just some old, old redneck from South Carolina. And it's like, actually, there's there's a lot that goes behind this. And so... I've always enjoyed explaining that to people, but going back to the story, we go out, we win the college fishing national championship. And I'll never forget up on the stage, Forrest Elwood, the, basically the, the founder of bass boats, the modern day bass boat hands us a check and he looks at us. He says, I'm proud to have you in America, which was at the time I was kind of thinking, I was just smiling. I didn't know what it meant, but other than, you know, that's what he said. But then I looked down and I see the president of the university jumping up and down. And I was like, hmm, this is very ironic. Maybe we need to make sure that his office realizes that, you know, his professors were not really taking the college bass fishing thing very seriously. Um, so after that, I did fail that class. However, I never regretted it one time because now the folks on the college bass fishing team get absences for their tournaments. So not to make myself a martyr but i had to tell him as i said earlier i'm not drinking beer watching my bobber go under we're going to places in the country that have not been reached by mainstream sports and so but that that moment on stage the culmination of you know years of hard work i remember like it was yesterday so as we move on a little bit you were a former journalist for bass but I'm wondering, how do you believe media coverage has impacted the perception and growth within the boating and fishing industry? So I would say that the media and growth of the industry go hand in hand. You know, Bass has been the pioneer of live tournament coverage. It's on Fox now. It was on ESPN for many years. And, you know, here about 12, 15 years ago now, Steve Bowman and the folks over at JM Productions started putting live cameras on boats and actually one of my first jobs for bass was going out and putting gopros on boats in the morning it was when gopro was sponsoring Bassmaster, and you only had like two cameras in the boat and so if they were in the top 10 they still had a chance to win and they're fishing for a hundred something thousand dollars and so there needed to be extra cameras on the rest of the boats and so i would go out and place those cameras on the other boats and then at the end of the day you go through all the footage and try to cut up some of the highlights for the end of the day, then you would upload it, obviously. But but getting back to the main point of the question, and, and this is sort of why I bring up the GoPro side of things, is, is people always have this need for immediate content. It's not a time anymore where, you know, when bass fishing first started, they would record the show 
and then it would be live or excuse me it would be aired on espn two or three weeks later and everybody already knew who won if you really paid attention to it and it would be you know a four-day tournament condensed down to a 90 minute 60 minute show on espn's outdoor block and so i think it really changed the game as far as bringing bass fishing and fishing in general to the level of other sports as far as the viewership goes i think it really impacted the younger audience you know we've seen college fishing high school fishing probably behind pickleball now it's probably one of the fastest growing sports in the country nice and tell us a little bit more about um, your journalism i understand after bass you went on to join another organization what how, how did this evolve what what sort of projects were you involved in maybe what was your most memorable moment from that stint as a journalist yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a cool story about how I got to where I am today. I was working for the Senate Majority Leader in the state of South Carolina, uh, Harvey Peeler, who is from Gaffney, ended up being the president of the South Carolina Senate. He introduced me to a guy named Bob McAllister here in Columbia, South Carolina. And he said, you know, I was a page and he told me one time, he was like, man, sitting here doing homework all day and for those of you that don't know what a page is it's basically a runner you go out and just do random errands and print different materials and make sure everybody has what they need he's like you're sitting here doing you know your homework and printing stuff off i could really use you over at our campaign sort of headquarters for the majority well i walk into the office when he introduced me to bob and i start seeing these pictures on the wall of all of these presidential folks from years past and all these working pictures with people I've only seen on TV. And then I get to the guy's office and I look above him and there's a 10 pound bass on the wall. And, um, he said, all right, they had a conversation. They said, all right, well, you're hired to, to be an intern. So, well, Mr. McAllister, would you not, you don't want to see my work? And he said, yeah, that'd be good. I said, well, what's your Wi-Fi password? He said, Bassmaster 2016. I looked over at Senator Peeler. I said, Senator Peeler, leave me here. And so after that, I started working for Bob. That was when I won the College Fishing National Championship. Bob looked at me and said, go fishing. Politics will always be here for you. And so I went fishing, started working for Bass. Then I came back to McAllister Communications, and we were the lead consultants for Bassmaster during the split of the Major League Fishing and, and Bassmaster Tournament Organization Trail, and, and very proud of our work that we did there and coming up with different ad strategies and, and different communication strategies to keep BASS as the number one leader in freshwater fishing. And so during that time with Bass, though, man, it was just incredible opportunities. I went to China to see Bass Nations Championship in China. That is probably hands down the coolest memory just to see the excitement and the way people chase little green fish around across the world. And that passion uh, was just remarkable. And it was something that I'll never forget. But, you know, it all comes back to it was it was just a God thing. I mean, just how all of this is set up. I was able to come back and start working for Bob. And honestly, when I was working at Bass and was freelancing and, and doing different articles, whether that was in Bassmaster Magazine or for their website, started noticing that a lot of the money being spent in fishing was coming out of South Carolina. And come to find out, our three largest fishing tackle manufacturers in the world, Pure Fishing, Rather Outdoors, which is Lou Striking, now Zepco, and plus a few other brands, and then Shimano, all of their North American headquarters are in, in South Carolina. And so that kind of brought me to the point where we said, 
is there anyone at the state house representing these folks? And there wasn't. So, you know, we've heard this story time and time again, how the water is a unifying factor with so many people, right? You know, even on my own dock, we got people that are award-winning scientists who won the Nobel Prize and, you know, people who invented 4G LTE, but everyone is connected by this shared love of the water. So, you know, as we kind of circle back to this internship when you were in politics, how did this internship come to influence your approach to advocacy within boating and the fishing industry? You know, right now, Washington, D.C. is not a good good model to see how politics is supposed to work. State legislatures across the country work together bipartisanly to pass laws and to advocate for business and advocate for constituents, where a lot of the time it's not the far right or far left issues that are at hand. And I I think I learned from Senator Peeler and Bob McAllister and others in the political space in South Carolina that when you truly care about something, the right thing will be done, as long as your voice is there. If you're not at the table, you're on the menu. Hmm. So tell us, tell us more about like what got you like started and what sparked that idea. So as I said a little while ago, you know, looking into the industry itself, learning about the fish and tackle manufacturers here was huge. But then I found out that there were 28 boat manufacturers here. So according to NMMA, the latest numbers, South Carolina's boating industry alone is worth $6.5 billion with a B. And over 27,000 jobs in South Carolina rely upon the boating industry. That's a little over 3% of our GDP. That industry was not represented at our statehouse. I mean, you had the Kitchen Cabinet Association. You have like all kinds of random things, the Golf Ball Association. I mean, there's an association for everything. And this was a legitimate thing that didn't have an association and going out and it it took a year and a half or so to really pitch this idea and get enough support behind it to have a founding board. And man, we just have some great leaders in South Carolina that are mavericks in this industry and they've made it happen. We have really built a great team, a great board. If you look at the top 10 boat manufacturers in the world, in the United States, about six of them are in South Carolina. And it's an incredible thing to see that these guys and a lot of them, uh, the funny thing is a lot of them are related. Um, So it's it's great to see them around the table together and making decisions and influencing policy in a positive way that helps everyday South Carolinians. And I say everyday because one in 10 South Carolinians own a boat. And so this is not just a state where mega yachts prevail, sailboats prevail. There are people in John boats, bass boats, all sorts of different things. So a lot of our listeners are going to know what the trade associations are within the marine industry, but can you kind of talk on, you know, what role the South Carolina Boating and Fishing Alliance fits within the the larger scope of marine? So the South Carolina Boating and Fishing Alliance is comprised of the most unique economic mix of boating and fishing companies in the entire world. You know, a lot of times we talk with national companies, international companies, they say, well, well, we can't, I don't know that we can support it because we have to support it in every other state. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Actually, there's not anything else like it. And so I say that to say that there are a lot of positives um, for having a state trade association that represents the corporation's headquarters. When our corporations start acting like headquarters, when our businesses start acting like headquarters, 
that's when the concentric circle, that sort of halo effect, goes around the state of South Carolina and helps influence policy across the country. We have great partners at NMMA, the National Marine Manufacturers Association, the Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, the American Sport Fishing Association, Center for Sport Fishing Policy, and probably a couple that I'm forgetting, but I work with them on a daily basis. And we really have penetrated even in Washington, D.C., I mean, we have two great senators in our state, one that's running for president right now, Tim Scott and Senator Lindsey Graham, our senior senator. You know, instead of talking about votes, we're talking about jobs. We're talking about their constituents. And I, and I really feel like that helps when you come from a localized level um, as opposed to being a national group knocking on the door, meeting with staff. Hmm. So could you elaborate a little more? How does the South Carolina Boating and Fishing Alliance, how does it work with other organizations, both within and outside South Carolina, to achieve its mission? See, collaboration and communication are two big things in our industry, as you all know. Right now, the big issue that's a unifying issue across our industry is the North Atlantic right well speed restriction rule that NOAA's trying to put into place, which would create a 10-knot or 11.5-mile-an-hour speed limit up and down the coast on the east coast and we've worked with with the teams at nmma asa csp and csf really closely to make sure that we all have the right messaging that we all have the right approach and and how do we work in south carolina to assist what they're doing in washington dc and you know that comes with some areas where we're able to be a little more aggressive and then it comes with areas that they're able to be more aggressive we as an industry care about the well we care about the right wells we care about the rice as well which is now another issue on the gulf but when it comes down to it the outdoors industry has let the environmentalist hijack the word conservation we are the original conservationist boating and fishing enthusiasts are the original conservationists and so when we start looking at that as consumers of our natural resources, there are a lot of natural partnerships that come up. And those partnerships are, I mean, iron sharpens iron, right? And so we are able to really strategize with some of the brightest minds in the industry. So obviously going off this, you know, idea that the the words evolve over time and, you know, sure, the, the word conservation has been hijacked and the reality is it's the fishers, boaters and hunters that really care about the environment. But what happens if you take away the ability to use the water? I would say, you know, I think there are other people that care about our natural resources, but the water is our golden egg. If we don't have that, then we don't have any other way to enjoy the waterways, one, enjoy, you know, just God's green earth and blue earth in this case. And it's just, it's one of those things where if we do not, as conservationists, take care of our waterways, it will not be there for the next generation, our grandchildren's generation, our grandchildren's grandchildren's generation, and so I think that there's a long line in the outdoors community that has that effect where we pass down those traditional values of how you treat the natural resources in which you live. And there is a group out there that don't want us on the waterways. And that's tough to hear for a lot of sailors, it's tough to hear for a lot of maritime folks. But there are people that would rather us not have a single 
ounce of wood or fiberglass on our waterways. And it is more powerful than you realize. These, and, and I'll say this, one thing that the industry has done that is not a good thing is we have not organized well. We have not done enough talks on podcasts. We have not had enough talks on shows across this country to raise awareness around the issues the way that the environmentalists have. The environmentalists will crowdsource a lot of things. And a lot of times, that's not good for us. And right now, I think that this North Atlantic Rightwell speed restriction rule has galvanized the industry, has brought us together more so than we've ever been brought together before, because it's the perfect example. If you look off the coast of South Carolina, in the last 50 years, we've only had one well strike that resulted in death. That, to me, is political science over actual science. The fact that they want to put a 10 knot or 11 and a half mile an hour speed limit on a boat when you have a better chance of being struck by lightning than hitting a well does not make any sense at all. Ahoy, investors. Are you on the lookout for a unique opportunity to invest in a thriving industry? Set your sights on ShipShape the innovative platform connecting boat and yacht owners with top-notch marine service providers. Our team is committed to revolutionizing the marine repair and refit market in North America. But we can't sail these seas alone. With your support, we can enhance our platform and create a significant impact in the industry. Don't let this exciting investment opportunity drift away. Contact us today to learn more about joining our voyage. Reach out to us at info at shipshape.pro. Well, when we start talking about right whales, you know, it's a, it's a very deep thing within the marine industry that's going on right now. And frankly, you know, the reality is that the marine industry let that happen in the first place that such a thing came around. But uh, another thing I'll say is that the blue economy, which is kind of this new term that's coming around, which is essentially innovations related to the ocean or maritime and kind of climate impact is becoming more and more of a thing. And the fact of the matter is the recreational boating industry is going to be relied on so heavily for these advancements to actually happen. Absolutely. Yeah. Technological advancements within the industry are important. I mean, the recreational marine industry accounts for $203 billion in national economic contributions each year. That's over 800,000 jobs. There are a lot of those folks that are engineers, technologically driven people that can come up with how to track the species of well. And that's what we need to do. And there have been a lot of people, you asked earlier, T, how the industry is working together. The perfect example right now is NMMA has a member, Viking Yachts, that's really stepped up to the plate and fought for appropriations language that will allow the industry to have more influence on the technology that's being given to monitor the wells. It's almost like when you take a hammer when there only needs to be a floss water. And that's where this industry is right now we have to continue to use common sense and we have to continue to say this is not happening it is a non-issue and to be quite frank there's no one in our industry that wants to run their boat into a well as you know with ship shape 
all of the marine repairs that y'all do and 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 facilitate nobody wants that so what what's the issue here lots of people be like why can't you just slow down why why can't you just do 10 miles an hour why is it such a passionate sort of thing that is bringing the whole industry together t i'm glad you asked uh, none of our boats are made to go 10 miles an hour they sit down a lot lower in the water actually the draft on a 10 mile an hour boat is a lot deeper than a boat planed out right when noah did their initial assessment they were doing the draft off of a cargo ship like if you're going to bring science bring it right and that's what the industry's been asking for when you look at a boat going 10 knots like let's just let's bring up charter captains let's bring up fishing charters all right i went 90 miles offshore a couple weeks ago it took me about two and a half three hours that right there would not be a thing that would take nine or ten hours right and so you would kill the entire charter fishing industry the commercial fishing industry would be impacted but i tell you what and, and y'all talk about a, a lot of issues on this show as i've listened before one of the main things that it would hurt would be our economy and the reason i say that is because folks don't realize you cannot safely steer a cargo ship into the ports down here at the port of charleston senator graham spoke on it last week you cannot safely pull in a ship at 10 knots it doesn't happen and so if you want to get into it you really create a stronger environmental risk whenever you're trying to steer a cargo ship through the channel at 10 knots because if the wind catches and it goes adrift on the shore you have all sorts of leaks whatever that might be whether it's gas oil whatever sort of pollution that goes into the waterways. So again, it goes back to common sense and actually looking at the issue and taking a scientific approach to the issue. But at the end of the day, it's a safety and environmental concern for us that 10 knots is a thing. We have to learn how to balance the economy and ecology in this industry. And if we don't, then we're going to be behind. So how does uh, the South Carolina Boating and Fishing Alliance handle the, the interests in regards to kind of these protected and endangered species and fragile ecosystems? Very fragilely. Uh, I, I think it's important to realize that everybody is passionate about certain subjects and, and whether it's shorebirds or whether it's whales or whether it's you know, red snapper. Red snapper is a huge, huge issue in the South Atlantic when you get behind NOAA and you start talking about I mean, they, they announced a couple weeks ago that the MRIP data, the which is the count of the snapper, has been wrong for like two or three years. And they only give us one day of snapper fishing, two days of snapper fishing. It is completely absurd. And so there are areas that, yes, you have to be cognizant of who you are uh, going up against one, but also where are those commonalities? Where So if, the, let's just say the, the real reason for these speed limits. Now that they're going on in the Gulf, they're gonna go on in Alaska, I've read, East Coast. If the true reason is to save whales, why don't we do something that saves whales, right? Because there are not enough strikes coming from vessels to rationalize any speed limit, much less one at 10 knots. And I keep going back to that because it's just a common sense issue. And it is an issue where our industry has done an incredible job of coming together and starting and saying, look, we see the other side of it. We understand that the, the breeding population of those wells is low, but we're not hitting the wells. 
Yeah, it, it happens, but it's less than a, a one in a million chance. You have a better chance of being struck by lightning. I will say that, you know, we, we keep jumping on this right whale thing and the NMMA. And frankly, when the NMMA, they started posting about the whole right whale thing, I saw the post. I started reading through it. I was like, OK, like Noah clearly isn't using any data within the marine industry. So can you talk about kind of this communication gap that has happened? One, they rushed the rule. Two, Frank Hugelmeyer at NMMA is a fantastic leader and has done a great job steering the ship on this issue. Three, this industry is not, we're not going out looking for fights, right? And this is something where this fight came to us and we have to be agile enough to make sure on a national level that we don't anger anyone. Uh, for future political reasons, even if sometimes we're talking common sense. But tell you this, in South Carolina, it doesn't matter quite as much because of the political landscape. But to your point, the reason it was hard to learn about is because they rushed it through. And so we formed a legal fund at the South Carolina Boating and Fishing Alliance. By the way, shameless plug, go to scbfa.com. And you can go to contact us and send me an email if you would like to join our legal fund. We need that terribly. Five, ten, twenty dollars helps. Anything helps. And I know this sounded more like a Fox News show, and I'm sorry, but we need <laughs> contributions. Does Fox News do that, really? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> every political candidate says, "Give to my campaign." I need you to give to the Rightwell Legal Fund. Uh, the other thing, though, and I, and I bring that up because our team of attorneys was able to grant an extension. We were able to get an extension granted from NOAA, um, and that gave us a little bit more time to bring up support. But let's go into this for just a second. You look at a regulation. What's the difference between a regulation and a bill? So everybody's saying, oh, there's no way they're going to let that pass. There's no way they're going to let that pass. It doesn't matter what your elected officials, the ones that you go to the ballot box to put in Washington, D.C., think this is under a federal bureaucratic agency that has the authority under the Endangered Species Act to make this rule, or at least they think they do. There's some legal questions behind that. But when you start looking at a bill that goes to an up or down vote, yes, that's where typical lobbying comes in. But when you look at an issue like this, where it originated in court where there were a, a bunch of fringe groups that came together and said you're not a, you're not doing enough to save the well under the endangered species act noah has to react and the biden administration has to react and so that's where we are under i've learned more about the federal regulatory process than i ever wanted to know and to learn that there are only about two or three people that can do something about this where it's secretary Armando or Joe Biden, that's pretty tough to hear because government's supposed to be elected by the people and for the people. And a lot of the folks that are making these decisions are unelected bureaucrats that don't have any accountability. True. And so I want to sort of make an analogy here. Correct me if I'm wrong. I remember reading somewhere where like the land speed limits, I don't remember if it was after World War II or wherever, but like they basically instituted them going at you know 500 miles an hour you're burning too much gas we need you to go at 65 or whatever could that have something to do with this is it is it truly about the whales or could it be they just want to reduce the overall gas bill as well glad you asked that t when you look at the opening document when this rule was first presented 
And it says, as part of the Biden-Harris energy plan, that answers the question. It's not the Endangered Species Act that clean energy is supposed to be regulated through. If we want to have a discussion about clean energy, let's have it. But it's not supposed to be under the Endangered Species Act. And I think with you seeing it in the Gulf, you see it on the West Coast now and obviously the East Coast. I, I don't know. I, I mean, I hate to call into question their prerogative, but I don't know that this is truly at the end of the day what we want to do. So as we kind of move on from this topic, you know, in terms of um, racial and gender disparities throughout the boating and fishing industry, what steps have you guys done to ensure inclusivity and diversity within the, the community? And its leadership. As you mentioned earlier, boating and fishing has a commonality with the water. The best thing that I can relate boating and fishing to is music. You look at the way that blues musicians and country musicians and others back in the early days before segregation worked together. And that's how they came up with some of the best music we know today. That's that's where our influences come from. And I wrote an article one time on Bassmaster about Alfred Williams, the first black angler to qualify for the Bassmaster Classic. And it was all about how there was no racial barriers on the Pearl River and that that was where everybody's diversity, inclusion, you're you're just somebody out on a dock you're fishing you're you're somebody out on the bank and you're fishing and that's what i love about this industry and to be quite frank y'all i think that that's the great thing about this industry is that it hasn't it hadn't penetrated our industry to be something that's out of the norm because in south carolina you go up and down the coast you go up and down to the lakes at santee cooper you go to any of these places and you see a very very diverse group of anglers that are fishing together, that are coming together for mills, that are just fellowshipping together. And I think that that's one of the things about this industry that, that makes it so pure is we don't have to really ask that many questions about it, especially in areas in the South, because this is already a place that we've come together as long as man's been making music. So throughout your experience, you've met a ton of politicians. So I have to ask you, how do politicians see boating in the first place? Mm, I thought all of them had a boat, a big one. You would think, <laughs> not all of them. Um, yeah. You know, it depends. There's some that kind of remind me of the professor that think that the, you know, the bobber goes underwater when you're drinking beer. And then there's some that understand it to the extent that they fish in tournaments too. And so in South Carolina, we're very lucky. Our chairman of Fish, Game, and Forestry, Chip Campson, down in the Charleston area, he represents about, I don't know, 30 or 40% of our coastline in South Carolina. He's a huge outdoorsman, and he's one of the biggest environmentalists. I mean that in the nicest way. Um, biggest conservationist that I know. And he does a very good job um, just in implementing policy and implementing good ideas. You have those that also learn to lean on industry as a resource, and that might be more important than knowing exactly how to case, catch a, a bass or throw a bait caster. Those that understand that there are a lot of issues that they have to cover day to day on the House calendar or the, the Senate calendar and know to reach out to the respective industries is an important quality of leadership that we don't see all the time, but it is very refreshing when we do. And I think the more industry presence that we have, the more that that happens. And so we have great politicians here in South Carolina. I know that that sounds like an oxymoron, but we do. 
And then I'll, I'll also say that, you know, nationally, we've been able to interact with a lot of politicians. We're first in the South primary state. We are the first in the South primary state. So we have a lot of presidential candidates coming through and we just want to educate them about the industry. Hmm. So I want to just probe you a little in terms of like, like some people would say that organizations like yours, you know, would prioritize growth or, you know, like there's almost like a danger of like overfishing. And, and how would you balance that sort of economic growth and at the same time preserve, you know, the natural beauty and health of, of the waterways? As I mentioned earlier, balancing the economy and ecology is the formula to this industry. You know, I'll take it back to this. When I was fishing tournaments, people would always say, why do you throw the bass back? Well, those are my business partners. If I can't weigh them in at the end of the day and they're <laughs> not alive, I'm not making money. And it's also, you start thinking about depleting the genetics pool whenever you start taking fish out. And so there's a time to do it. There's a time that there are there's some overpopulation. But to answer your question, I think a lot of sportsmen don't necessarily like killing everything that they catch. But I think that there is a time and place for it. And I think that there is also a place where, you know, those fish need to swim another day. So what is the future of the South Carolina Boating and Fishing Alliance look like? You know, I, I wish I knew. I know now that we have a, a great board made up of owners of boat companies across our our state, just to name a few companies in our state. We have scout boats, sportsman boats, sea hunt boats, sea pro boats, tidewater, sportsman. You have Pioneer, Bulls Bay, Avengers, Stingray, Bentley Pontoons, Falcon Bass Boats, Sea Fox, Key West, Freeman Boats. These are big names in our industry. And they've all come together to make sure that our industry is better for our next generation. So obviously, you know, when we start talking about kind of some of the marine trade associations within the United States, you know, some of them are kept up like the South Florida, you know, Association of Marine Trades and, uh, you know, the Massachusetts Marine Trades. But, you know, a lot of them are kind of non-existent in a way. How do you try to bridge that gap with some of these other states? Because frankly, it sounds like you guys have a lot going for you. You know, how do you give that knowledge to the other states? They have they have a lot of institutional knowledge in this this space as well. Not only do we focus on workforce, but we also get involved in the lobby as we've talked about and i think that whole idea of if you're not at the table you're on the menu is something that that folks really need to focus on and and think about the risk that's associated with politics and and, and we cannot be scared of politics it's a necessary evil for our industry and if nobody's fighting for us then there will be no one to say what this industry needs to say. And I think that in some states, it becomes more of a civic group than it does a political arm. And we're a nonpartisan organization. We represent boats, and we represent fishermen. And so right now we're doing presidential visits. We have Vivek Ramaswamy at Tidewater earlier this year. We've had uh, former President Trump a few weeks ago. We have a few others on the calendar. Everybody's invited, but there's an educational standpoint that UNT are doing on this podcast that's so often looked over because we talk about the purity of boating and fishing, you know, even going back to the diversity question, does politics need to be involved? Do we need to have some of the conversations we're having? Yeah, we do. 
even though a lot of it already exists without us having to put it there and shove it in other folks face so get us you packed a lot of punches i like it okay we're gonna go for a little light sort of stories before we close up the show but maybe and like a couple maybe like one from your political career you know just the most memorable experience you've had maybe one from your fishing days you know your favorite fishing spot like just give us a couple of cool stories well there's been a lot of great experiences that i've been blessed with and we've done a lot of cool things in short time here in south carolina uh one of the cool things that we've done that's a highlight every year is we are a title sponsor of the South Carolina Gamecocks football team. And uh, each year we do a boat show outside the game. And this year we did the Mississippi State game. And getting out there and just seeing the fans' eyes when they see how many of these boats that they know about and have seen across the country are made in South Carolina in their backyard is a really cool experience. And it's one of those things that you kind of look around and say, wow, we pulled it off. Uh, we have a boat show at a football game. And so I think professionally, that's a, a super rewarding experience and being down on the sidelines and, and being with Coach Beamer and and those folks on the football team and just bringing together boating, fishing and football, which are there. There are no three things that are more South Carolina than boating, fishing and football. And so seeing that each year is really cool. Specifically, you know, the stories that have come from those games have just been great interactions and and those are times that, that we won't forget here you know there, there's a lot of fishing stories now everybody has fishing stories and if we were talking about fishing stories we'd be here all night but you know what the, the day you know the you lost the big one or something something like that you know something like oh, oh well i mean like i said we'd be here all night I, i've lost so many big ones I mean, <laughs> Fun fact, we almost won three national championships in a row, and we lost by one ounce on Wheeler Lake in uh, Alabama. That's got to be tough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when ounces cost you money, it's hurtful. Um, (laughs) So I'll tell you a funny story. When I I was putting GoPros out for Bassmaster, and he's going to kill me for for telling the story, but it's a a good story. Fun story. We're just having a good time. Fun story. Fun story. There's a professional angler who's one of the most famous professional anglers of all times. His name's Davey Height. He's become one of my best friends and mentors. This time, I didn't know him. Uh, he's from South Carolina. He's probably a Mickey Mantle of bass fishing, if you would. He's in the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame. Now he's the lead analyst on Fox for, for bass fishing. And so anyway, we were at Toledo Bend, and I was having to put out GoPros. And when I was putting out the GoPros, man, that that mud really gets on your feet. And still to this day, I don't think the mud was on my feet. But I got in Davy's boat one morning, and I don't know. He must have not found any fish or something because he was real mad. Um, and he started looking around. He's like, man, I just cleaned my boat, and I cannot believe there's mud all over it. Well, come to find out, it was his marshal that was riding with him in the boat. And but that that's how Davy and I built a relationship. And now he's on our board and he's uh, he and his wife, Natalie, have, have been with me to everything from the governor's mansion to, you know, fishing tournaments across the country. And we have a good time together. But I always love to tell that story because Davy's a huge influence in this industry. And I'll never forget. I was so scared, man. I think I was still in college, too. So I was like, well, I'm not going to get this internship back. <laughs> it was a. Uh, that was a fun story. There's a lot of stories. I mean, I, I used to take Ubers for like three hours from Texas to Louisiana because I wasn't old enough oh to boy. rent a car yet. Um, 
I was, but you know, if you're under 25 trying to rent a car, then they put all those extra fees mm-hmm. on you. And I didn't have, you know, I didn't have the money to float to wait on production to pay me back. So, you know, I used to just jump in the car with random people in the industry. And that's just the kind of industry we have, you know, with Yamaha, for instance, I'll never forget. We used to connect through Atlanta a lot whenever we go to any place. And so connect through Atlanta, see this guy get on the plane in Yamaha shirt. We land in Shreveport, Louisiana, and we are going to actually that same tournament to lead a bend. When we get off the plane, I'm the only one coming from South Carolina for bass. So I didn't have a car. And the guy from Yamaha, I think I had on a Yamaha hat because somebody had given it to me before. He was like, Hey, you're supposed to ride with me. And so I just got in the car with him and we get about 10 or 15 minutes down the road. And I was like, you know, I don't work for Yamaha. Right. And he was like, huh. he's like, no, I just now learned that. John O'Keefe with Yamaha ended up being the first two years of the Boating and Fishing Alliance ended up being over government relations, over our committee for government relations. And so it's just, it's that kind of industry, man. And so those are are a couple of lighthearted stories. Politically, I I have to say, I have been in roundtables with some of the leaders of the free world. And it's, it's just been an incredible, incredible opportunity and an incredible honor to be able to speak about our industry from sitting with secretary mike pompeo to senator scott senator graham vice president pence and most recently president trump it's been a a learning experience to see how do we show our industry in the light that creates that need for exposure and, and that's a lot of what you guys do on this podcast. But but when we get in there and we talk about issues, how do we relate that to jobs? How do we relate that to the common conservation values that we all share? And I think that, um, you know, that's an important thing to do. And messaging, as Meryl said earlier, is just there's a gap in our industry that that we have to do a better job of. And we're all aware of it. And we have to be unafraid to stand up for what's right for our industry and it was a a great experience having president trump in a very believe it or not very down to earth and relatable guy that that his main question that he wanted to know and i can't i'll say this on the he kept asking what was better mercury or yamaha and i was like well i I think both (laughs) of them are great motors he was like no 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 off record off record i was like no both of them are great motors so yamaha and mercury if you're listening both of y'all are fantastic. Yeah, uh, I stuck up for both of y'all. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. But he he uh, he did say that when he left the economy, it was roaring like a Mercury four hundred horsepower engine. Um, so that was a that was a funny uh, little tidbit from his his speech that he gave. But there is a, a lot of of things in this industry that need to be messaged, and and that's what we're here to do. So as we come to our conclusion here, what advice would you give a young guy or woman trying to break into the industry? And also, you know, we can close it out. You can give us the locations of where to find you. Absolutely. You know, this industry is big enough for everyone to be a part of and learn from others. It is a close knit community. I'll say from the fishing side of things, to go back to your diversity point earlier, the fish don't know the color of your skin. The fish don't know whether you're a man or a, or a female. And that is what makes that sport so great. 
And I think that as we keep reaching out to other communities that might not be as involved in the outdoors and other areas of the country, I think that keeping in mind when you're going to get involved in this industry, that's not something that the fishing industry has to to much worry about. And that's not to say there are not racial barriers there, or I'm, I'm not saying or, or claiming to understand each and every person's individual issue, but fish do not see skin color and they don't see gender. And I think that that's an important part to go back to your question earlier. But to answer your question about people getting into the industry, I think the advice I would have, go to college, you like to fish, no matter how good you are, no matter if you're backlashing every time, keep practicing, find a college bass fishing club. It'll be the best time of your life. You'll get to follow the seasons. And what I mean by that is you'll be in Florida in the winter and you'll be in New York in the summer. And it's beautiful, beautiful thing because you're not sweating in Columbia and you're not freezing in New York during those certain times. But get involved with your college fishing team, learn about the industry and just take whatever opportunity comes in front of you and just grab it by the horns and, and don't be scared of adversity and don't be scared of some of the things that you might run into along the way. You know, it's a it's an industry that's very important to me. It's stood beside me during some of my toughest times. I lost my dad to early onset Alzheimer's as a freshman in college and my whole fishing team was at his funeral. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, and, and, and it's uh, one of those things though that makes you reflect and see that there are opportunities that arise from from situations and adversity that you can continue to fight and continue to do what you know is right. And I think that that's where a lot of the fight in me comes from is, is I see those opportunities and I see those situations in the past that have built out my personality and built out the way that, that I want to work on certain issues and help others be involved in these issues. But it's, it's an industry that's a brotherhood. It's an industry that is a very tight-knit community. And once you get in it, you're hooked. You're not getting out of it. Hmm. No pun intended, right? And uh, any any sort of, because we talked about politics and this and anything, anything to spread the word and close the communication gaps that you'd want to leave the, the youth with or people in the industry? Covered a lot today. I think that that our workforce is certainly important and we didn't hit on that a whole lot, but we've started a boat building school down at Ori Georgetown Tech here in South Carolina that we're very proud of. Dr. Lisa Waller, who has her PhD in higher education curriculum building, happens to be the wife and one of the co-owners of Falcon Bass Boats. And so we've, we're just so lucky to have her on our team to build a curriculum that will result in a program that's already started, but result in a program that we are building a facility out for in the spring. And so we're super excited for that. But, you know, it's an industry, man, that the communications gaps, the gaps in some of the ways and some of the places that we have come from are there, but we do a good job of coming together when we need to. And um, I think that these last few months and last year have, have really shown the resiliency of the industry and what we need to do. So Geddes, where can we find you and read more about what you guys are working on? So Merrill, the best place to find us and to learn more about us is at www.scbfa.com. 
We have individual memberships and we have business memberships. And we welcome people from across the country to to become members because not to hit on this issue again and not to throw another punch, T, but <laughs> we do a good job of winning this issue on the East Coast and in South Carolina, then we set precedents in the Gulf Coast. We set precedents for the West Coast. And so that's the reason state issues matter. Always remember the adage that all politics are local. Mm -hmm. You start thinking about that in relation to the boating and fishing industry, that is when we will make a true change and we will do it for the better. Awesome. Check back every Tuesday for our latest episode and be sure to like, share and subscribe to ShipShake.pro. Pro, 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 pro.